All right, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. It's been a trying week for America to the tragic death of George Floyd. I guess I should say tragic murder. Not sure that everyone wants to hear three white guys talk about it, but we want to address this right at the beginning because I, I think the words, the best way to address this is to use the words of Michael Johnson, the former Olympic star and sprint star, who said the following on a podcast on Sky Sports. In the past, when you asked him, should athletes speak out about politics or tragic events, he said no. It's, um, my position has always been in the past that if you feel you can help and you feel compelled to do so, then you should do so. But no one should pressure other people into doing something that they are not comfortable with. But today, my position is completely different. If you are silent, you are complicit. We are at that point. You have people out there, young people, old people, black people, white people, Asian or Hispanic, and all different cultures and backgrounds out there fighting out there making sure that this issue is being brought to prominence to where everyone is paying attention to what's really happening in this country and how people are suffering. If you have a platform, you owe it to those people. You owe it to those whose lives have been lost. You owe it to our ancestors who fought through the civil rights movement back in the 60s. You owe it to all of them. If you have this position like I did, you have a prominent position and, you're benefited, and you've benefited from the hard work of all those people to have what you have. You owe it to all of them not to be silent. So I think those are great words from Michael. People, don't be silent. This has got to stop. The police brutality. Uh, we've seen it here. I've seen it personally here in Baltimore five years ago. Very similar incident. Yes, people here paid attention to it, but obviously not enough. So, Yeah, I think it's good that people around the country are making their voices heard, that they're speaking out. I don't think we're the best people. We're not going to solve this, us, the three of us on this podcast, but I think there are a lot of people edu more educated and more well-informed people than us who are writing and saying a lot of smart things right now. And you should go out there, you read the news, go on Twitter, see what's going on, like stay informed and make your own voice heard. That's what I would encourage. We're going to get to running eventually, but I, I think you're right to bring it up, Robert. And like you said, what Michael had to say was, was important and uh, necessary. I'm not sure, John, going on Twitter is the best advice, but... There's good stuff on Twitter. There's also bad stuff. That's a fair point. That's right. I mean, just media in general these days is kind of crazy across the board. But I saw a quote now from George Floyd's six-year-old daughter, and it's, Daddy changed the world. And hopefully some good can come from this in the sense like now you see cops with protesters kneeling. They realize police brutality, racism... It's a huge problem. And likely, like the commonest, I think, you know, the vast majority of people are so united, uh, this being wrong and that sort of stuff, and that there can be some common good to come out of it and we'll become a better society. Because the images, uh, the, the media loves to focus on the negative, but uh, the looting and the, the rioting and that sort of stuff, whereas the vast majority of people are peacefully protesting. So, the people out there, organized crime, Antifa, those people who are taking advantage of this. It's just sort of sad because I think out of this, hopefully America is always an evolving country and we clearly haven't evolved quick enough, but we can get to a much better place. But I mean, we don't want something like this to have to happen to get there, obviously. So our thoughts are with George Floyd and his family and everyone else out there of especially in the black community, but other communities who, who are suffering. Well said. All right, guys, people could use some positivity after a trying week. So let's, I'll start, I'm going to talk about what we're going to have on this week's show. It's a great show. Let's start with the positive folks. 
Track is back on track, at least in parts of the world. 17,000 people have competed in a track and field meet in the Czech Republic. Last week, Jamaica and Kenya have both opened up their national stadiums for training. Um, Colleen Quigley has destroyed Royal Roy McIlroy in a sporting event on ESPN. All that is good news. We're going to talk about all that, and we're going to talk about some bad news, though. Folks, 2020 Boston Marathon has been canceled. Brown track and field, the men's team, after 145 years, has also been cut. That's not good. And then we're going to have not one, but two interviews. Ultra marathoner Tyler Andrews will join the show. And, folks, the first time, maybe ever, certainly in a long time, we're going to have a high schooler join the show. Joe Fast from Canada will join with a couple amazing hot takes on Alan Webb, Mo Farah, and more. John, where do you want to begin? Uh, yeah, just one other thing. Tyler Andrews, you mentioned him. He's on to promote the Chosky Challenge, which is an event, a virtual, well, it's kind of a virtual event that's happening this weekend, but him and a bunch of other athletes, including Sarah Hall, are going to be going after a bunch of world records on the treadmill. They're going to be streaming it live. It should be pretty fun. It's a sort of, it's a race uh, for people to watch this weekend. So that'll be fun. But where I want to start, I think we have to start with the Boston Marathon getting canceled. This is the big news. I don't think anyone who's paying, been paying attention is particularly surprised by this, but it is unfortunate. And it kind of makes me think, I don't, know if we're going to have any kind of full marathon season this fall. I wish I could say I thought you were wrong, John, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that Boston is one of the more conservative cities in terms of COVID right now. Um, the race was the earliest of the fall marathons. So it's surprising. I mean, so it's canceled was far from a surprise, but I'm starting to get a little bit optimistic, John, that, that things could be turning around. We're seeing the, the Czech Republic event, uh, I was looking at the numbers and on World of Meters Info t this morning about about Italy, sort of very quietly. The numbers down there, you know, are way way down. Um, you know, at the peak you were at 900 deaths a day. Now you're way down to 50 deaths a day. So, you know, the hope was that this could die down maybe a little bit in the, with the warm weather. Still not sure if the scientists know that, but I would like to think somebody is going to have an elite marathon. If it's maybe not the mass marathon, at least let the pros race somewhere. And I think the only places that's likely to happen are New York and London because they have more money. You know, can we get Bekele and Kipchoge um, against each other? Yeah, I'd love to see that. And I think you're right, Robert. The mass event, I mean, a marathon is one of the worst events you could have in terms of, spreading the disease that's one of the things you you're gathering a lot of people together and the runners obviously that they're going to be in motion but you've got volunteers you've got spectators you've got the finish area i mean that's definitely an event that would facilitate spreading and so that's going to be something people are going to be reluctant to bring back but like you said maybe we can figure out an elite race maybe we have they block off central park for a day and it's just the elite runners or they go doesn't even need to be in a huge city but somewhere where you can get maybe 20 men and 20 women, some of the world's best marathoners, and you get them all together and race. And I think that would be awesome. You know, Could you imagine, instead of three full marathons, we, full major marathons, we just have one, but it's all the best athletes. They're all wearing to race. They're all put together. It would be kind of like a mini Olympics. So I don't know how feasible that is, and it would require some cooperation, but 
if say if Chicago, say what if the World Marathon majors all decided, hey, we're going to put all our resources to having this one race, and it's going to be some neutral site. Could that happen? Maybe, but I think it's worth exploring at, at the very least. I think the, the issue is really the money, though. Normally, it's sort of the mass race pays for the elite race, but it would be cool. I, I think it's easily doable. I mean, from a logistical standpoint, I, I don't think the elites really is a health issue. Um, and the question then would be how much do you pay them? I mean, in the one sense of if there's only one big race, you're kind of in the bargaining bargaining power. What I would like to see is huge prize money. Just say, hey, we're going to give $300,000 for first. You know, everyone shows up. Maybe it would be, be so large. It would be unfeasible. But, you know, I, I think that they could do it if they really wanted to. Um, you know, I think some of these races might fear the, the blowback if they have an elite-only race. Um, so it, it'll be interesting. But I, I'm starting to think – you know, if push comes to shove, will there be one elite marathon in the fall? I'm going to say it's over 50%. Yes, there will be. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's kind of too early for me to tell. But right now is the time. We need an eccentric billionaire to arrive on the scene and, and stage an event like this. This is what you need in times of COVID is eccentric billionaires to put on these new crazy events. Uh, and that would be a good use for one. Well, speaking of billionaires and money, John, you and I are both Ivy League grads, as is Weldon. And so the Ivy League is dear and dear to us and has a rich track and field tradition. But this week it came out, or I guess over the weekend or Friday, whenever it was, that Brown University is going to be cutting the men's track and field and cross-country program. It's been around for 145 years. Now, the interesting thing is the excuse for cutting this program to me was – it's got my my, my, my my blood boiling. The AD says, look, this isn't about the money. We're not cutting our, our athletic budget. We're just going to cut track and field and a couple other sports like squash and skiing. What was another one? Uh, golf, I think. Um, both men's and women's on, on, on those sports. And we're going to try to give those funnel those money to other sports so we can have excellence because Brown does not really do very well in the Ivy League level. In sports, they only won 2.8% of the Ivy League championships, I think, over the last decade when there's only eight teams in the league, so you should be winning about 12% if everyone won them consistent, evenly. So they said it's not about the money, and also they want to increase the diversity of the sports teams. So they are cutting a number of, of sports that people view as predominantly white, but track and field is the most diverse sport at Brown University. Um, I think football is the most diverse, isn't it? Or it's track and field. Is it second? Or maybe basketball? They're both, they're, it's, yeah. it's leading up there. Yeah. And I'm going to – when I saw this press release, I became very angry. And the more I read about it, the angrier I become. And I don't think this is the last we've heard of this story. Um, I have another major – a couple of major points I want to make about this. One, when they say it's not about the money, it is about the money. So – yes, they're not cutting their athletic budget, but their athletic budget as a whole is probably one of the smallest, smaller in the Ivy League. So some of their teams are a little bit underfunded compared to their peers. So they're going to take the money, like they're going to save roughly $600,000 for men's track and put that spread it across some of these other sports. So yes, it is about the money. You think for your other sports to win, they need more money. So you're just getting rid of these other sports and using that money somewhere else. So if they had more money, they wouldn't need to cancel track and field. So I, I think, A, they're lying about the money. That's number one. 
Number two, this diversity argument that there's going to be increasing the diversity of Brown is embarrassing. I, I think they try to just make this up or provide some excuse. It just drives me nuts about the way administrators think about things. That is ridiculous. I'm going to link to an article from Russell Dinkins, 800-meter runner at Princeton, and African-American young man. He's posted up on Medium. He, he sent me an email, but and I'm going to read from the email. He gave me permission. What made me particularly angry was that Brown made a release a statement about supporting black students and fighting injustice. This is recently they released a statement after the George Floyd death. But the school is taking away track, one of the most diverse sports on campus, but they are keeping lacrosse, ice hockey, baseball, and crew? Really? There are more black kids on their track roster than all of the other sports combined. I checked. And to add insult to injury, they're elevating sailing to varsity. No. Especially right now, we need to call people and institutions out for their BS. So uh, that was his email to me. He's written a, a, an article on Medium which is quite good about this. I've talked to some other people about this, John, and you know, I, I think it's real. The, the, the amount of, I mean, Russell's the perfect example. If it was not for track and field, he would have never been able to achieve the Ivy League. It's been life-changing for him and his family. And he, he's a perfect example of, of how track and field, because of its diversity, there's a low barrier to entry really does help increase sort of the, the, the minority participation. Well, I think the other point to make there, Robert, is it's not that these, you know, a minority athlete who's on the track team doesn't deserve to be at Brown otherwise, but that track and field is the way for them to get into the door. Some of these athletes, some of these student athletes wouldn't be noticed otherwise. And then they get to Brown, they fit in perfectly, but it's because track that they're able to get noticed and get those spots. Yeah, I was talking to, a, to an Ivy League coach uh, this morning, actually, before we recorded the podcast. And what they were saying was, really, the barrier to entry to track and field is much more accessible to African-Americans than other sports. And I couldn't believe this. But the, the, the example they gave was um, some of these uh, field hockey coaches and stuff like that, lacrosse coaches, they have private camps. Guess how much it costs, John? To go to the Princeton lacrosse, excuse me, field hockey camp. How long's the camp? It's on campus, and you get to you get to go to like group class. Just one week though. How long is ten it? week camp? And you get to you know the Princeton coach runs it for high schoolers. Ten so, week, ten week camp. It's ten, ten, ten different sessions. Oh. I it's ten weeks, but there's ten sessions. I believe could be ten weeks. Maybe if it's ten weeks, I'd say something like eight thousand dollars or something. Anyways, it's it's ten classes and it's nine hundred dollars. Oh, nine. Okay. So nine I thought they were on campus for 10 weeks. So, okay. you know, that's really quite expensive. So, you know, and lacrosse, you got to be on these club teams and stuff like that. So whereas track and field, you know, as Russell points out in his medium piece, all you need is a pair of shoes. If you put up a fast time, it doesn't matter where it is. It's going to get noticed. And then you can go to a college sport. You know, a lot of these sports, it does take resources to be good at, whether that's, you know, crew, lacrosse, etc. So I, I do think that the diversity issue is one that maybe could save the men's track and field team because um, I think there's going to be outrage. A, a parent from Brown called me the other day who's a fan of the website, and they were telling me that, yeah, well, there's a there's a there's going to be a legal fight. That's one option, um, you know. And, and then the second one is they'd heard that the New York Times was sniffing around this story because the optics of this are terrible that, oh, we're going to increase diversity. But wait a minute, we're cutting one of the most diverse teams on, on campus. 
That's ridiculous. So I, I really do hope that this gets overturned. Yeah, and I think if you're listening right now and you want you feel strongly about this, make your voices heard. Reach out, post on social media, reach out to the administration at Brown, let them know that you're upset about this and and why. And I think one of the things, Robert, you didn't really mention this, but this is the reason why I think it was the team was cut. It was only the men's track and field and cross country teams. Title nine. That is the explanation essentially that was given in this whole press release, which Brown titled the excellence in Brown athletics initiative, which I feel is just totally ironic and ridiculous when they're announcing they're cutting 11 teams. But title nine is this policy where you have to have equal opportunities for men's and women's athlete athletics. And a lot of the time that means schools try to do this by ensuring that their percentage of student athletes is in line with the percentage of the gender breakdown on campus. So if you have 53% men and 47% women on, on campus, you need to have 53% male athletes and 47% women, female athletes, you know, about the, and Brown, to me, they were cutting women's skiing and they're cutting women's equestrian and then all the other sports, they're cutting men's and women's teams. I think they needed to cut a team that was just men and they decided to do track and field and cross country because if they were, you know, if they they thought the whole sport wasn't sustainable, they would have cut the women's team too. And unfortunately, this is something we've seen across our sport recently, you know, Akron's cutting their men's team, Central Michigan's cutting their men's team you know, men's cross country for Akron in this case, I think it was indoor track, maybe outdoor track for central Michigan, but this happens a lot is title nine is used in as an excuse. And to me, it's being misused. It's title nine. The aim was to provide more opportunities for female athletes. And instead, a lot of schools are saying, instead of doing that, they're just cutting back on men's teams. A lot of times cross country or track and field. Yes. So that the numbers are level. Well, that's why I started by saying it's about the money because they need money. In my opinion, they probably would have cut both track teams. I mean, track is a large team and it does cost, while per per athlete, it's one of the lowest cost sports. Overall, there's so many athletes, it costs a lot. So they're going to save about $600,000 by by canceling this men's team. Now they're going to lose a lot in donations. So, you know, maybe they only end up saving a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. I think personally, they would have cut both teams but then they would have had huge Title IX problems, so they could only cut the men's team, so they got rid of men's. Um, it doesn't really make sense to keep one men's, you know, one sex. You have to spend so much on an indoor track and an outdoor track anyways. You might as well have both, but I don't think they can do that for Title IX reasons. So, you know, they're, they're getting rid of the men's teams. I agree with you, John. I think the proportionality test, I think in this day and age, you know, it's changed a lot over the last 25 years. Actually, Brown lost a Title IX case, and they're under stricter got stricter regulations because they lost in like 19 late 1990s this case so their numbers the justice department supposedly looking at it i think things have changed that the poor personality test might be thrown out they don't use that test in the engineering department they don't use it in the business school they don't use it in the nursing school they only apply it to, to, for sports and title nine really has nothing to do with sports it's just the, the funding of higher education so i think that potentially one of the legal arguments is hey, we're being discriminated because we're male track athletes and that shouldn't be right. Um, but it's complicated because obviously there's a men's football team and there's no corresponding women's team. That's the biggest issue at every school. There is no other women's only sport that has a roster the size of football. And whenever you sponsor a men's football team, you're going to have that you know sort of issue. But one last thing about this Brown thing that really drove me nuts. To me, the most embarrassing aspect of it was 
Okay, if, if you think they have too many sports and you want to focus on a few, I can understand that argument. But it's still about the money because you need money to, to get to these other sports. But if you want to do that, you don't do it at the beginning of June or end of May. That's unacceptable. And it shows to me that these administrators do not really care about the people under their charge. Like, think about it. They've just recruited an entire class of freshmen that are now locked into Brown University and can't get into another school. So if they were going to do this, they should uh, – it's effective immediately. So there's no season. They should have said, okay, we're going to cancel track in four years. Men's track will be winding down. Let these students at least compete this year or wind it down in three or four years or announce it last fall so that people could transfer out. Like, yes, the transfer portal is open, but these brown kids can't transfer into other Ivy schools because that part has, has closed for most of the schools. Well, I'm back, had to take care of the baby, and you guys are soft-pedaling this and going all over the place. Discrimination is wrong. Discrimination against black people is wrong. Discrimination against women is wrong. But discrimination against men is wrong as well. And just cutting a men's sport to to hit some quota, that is discrimination, and it's wrong. And the diversity angle, like we can obviously like you want diverse sports and say this is in the, the doing this to promote diversity while cutting the most diverse, the most equal, equal access sport of all is just wrong. And the Title IX proportionality test, that's not even coded in the law. It's one way to comply with this stuff. But quotas generally are it's not the spirit of what diversity is about. And it, they're wrong. Like they, they shouldn't be there. And a sport school like Brown that has 30 plus sports, pretty much offering every sport for them to cut a men's sport and not cut a women's sport to me. And that, that's just wrong, especially a diverse sport like track and field. So hopefully this can get corrected. Um, Brown actually has, I think most colleges do have more women than men, 53% for Brown, 47% men. If you want to do quotas, you should say, Oh, that that's wrong. You know, actually, more men are born every year in the United States than women. So should the colleges, if we're just going to go off a quota, we should have more men at the college. They should cull some women from the college. Of course not. You know, they're, they're admitting the best students they think are possible. And there's more women admitted. I think that's totally fine. So you shouldn't cut men's sport. We got to stop the mindset that cutting men's sport, because that counts three times because you cut indoor track, outdoor track and cross country and the same athlete counts three times that that's fair or right. No, that is wrong. And people need to speak out for what's right. All right, guys, enough Brown talk. That Weldon, I think, coming in late, summarized it perfectly. Let's go on to a couple of the minor sporting events that did happen over the weekend. I guess ESPN had a Peloton challenge with a bunch of celebrities. You guys see this? Now, Colleen Quigley has destroyed the women's competition. I mean, I've got to pull it up here, John. Do you have do you have the actual stats in front of you? Like, she was so much farther ahead of all these. There was like eight professional women's athletes and then eight professional men's athletes. And, and Colleen was like, I want to say like 50% higher than everyone else. Now that sounds amazing. And it is congratulations, Colleen. But the more I thought about it, like, well, shouldn't Colleen Quigley, who's an endurance athlete, destroy everybody like an endurance challenge? Like who were these other athletes, John? Yeah, so here are the results. This is based on total output, according to an ESPN tweet. I don't know exactly what the time period is. I don't have a Peloton, so I don't really know what all these numbers mean. But Colleen Quigley was the winner with 348, whatever of this unit is. And then second place was a golfer, Morgan Pressel. Third place, Michelle Smith. I don't even know who that is. 
Fourth place, Victoria Azarenka, tennis player. Morgan Pressel was 226, by the way, compared to Quigley's 348. And then you also had seventh place was Dawn Staley at 157. Then eighth, eighth place last was Allison Felix at 156. Now, obviously, Quigley has a huge advantage over these other women because running is like a super endurance focused sport and quickly also cross trains a lot. She's had a lot of injury issues. So I'm sure she's quite well suited for this challenge. What I was shocked though, is Dawn Staley, who's been retired for several years from pro basketball. She's a 50 year old head coach now beat Allison Felix. And obviously like sprinting, that's not really the best skill set for an endurance challenge like this. But I was kind of surprised that Allison Felix, who is still competing, Beat lost to a you know retired basketball player several years older than her. Hey, Allison is fast for very short distance. I guess not in the endurance. Could have started for trying. Now, John, you're talking about these the metrics. I, I read an article on uh, Canadian running. They weren't sure what the metrics were, but they, they thought it was some sort of raw power metric. And then they tried it. But I thought it was interesting. They ended up dividing it by what they thought was the athlete's body weights. So they thought that would be more fair. Like basically, you're wattage per kilogram of body weight and under those under that colleen actually beat the men so she would be 5.7 watts per kilogram roy mcelroy the golfer would have been second at 4.8 but someone like alex and felix would have been just 2.8 way back in night and they, they had to eliminate some people because they didn't have the body weights for some of them but no matter how you put it colleen quigley which i guess should not be a surprise right no, I mean again, Colin Quigley. If I expect, if you said she was racing Rory McIlroy in any sort of endurance-related event, I would say Colin Quigley would smoke him. Was this broadcast live on ESPN? Does anyone know how this worked? I think it was. I don't know exactly how they were doing it, though. And just for the record, Let'sRun.com is a SoulCycle supporter. We're in the SoulCycle community. SoulCycle now has at-home bikes. Everyone, SoulCycle with the end class. Classes canceled. Get ready for those to come back and support SoulCycle. And I forgot to plug our sponsor. This week, folks, it's here. We've hinted at it. John Kellogg is out of retirement. If you need a high school, summer training plan, even I guess if you're in college, we could do it too. Sign up now. We will coach you, John, me, and Weldon. Give you a plan. We're not just going to – you guys think we're high mileage, you gals too? Just a high mileage program? No, 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 no. We've evolved with the times. Every day you'll be assigned a run, touching a number of different paces, particularly the intermediate and advanced plans. You have high-end running, strides, crest load pace, 5K race pace, even stuff at your 1,600-meter race pace, all sorts of stuff. So sign up now. Check it out, guys, for a great summer training. All right, one thing. We got an email from last week, guys. Now, you know – John, 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 real quick. One more about the summer training. Because we're going to teach you about the history of Let's Run so you understand not just the numbers of Let's Run, but the soul and the essence. We offered summer training one other time, I think in the summer of 2001 or two. Anyways, we only had a handful of athletes sign up. Internet was new. But one of them ended up doing so well his freshman year of college that he begged me to become his college coach. It led to me becoming the Cornell men's distance coach, along with John Kellogg as my assistant. All American honors, this athlete finished one spot behind Ryan Hall at NCAA Cross Country. Thank you, Bruce Hyde. I can't guarantee you'll be an All-American like him, but maybe you will be. Maybe you'll be better. Who knows? Anyway, as I was saying, we got an email last week. Now, we at Let's Run.com, we've been known to pat ourselves on the back from time to time when we write about something, but we also admit our mistakes. And this email 
point out a couple. So as you recall, last week on the podcast, we talked about Leo Dashbach, the Arizona high schooler who joined the sub four club and got an email from a guy named Jason who pointed out a couple issues that he had with our discussion there. Said, greetings. This week on your podcast, you rightfully praised Leo Dashbach for his sub four mile. There was some comment about how this deserved to be regarded as the number three performance behind Ryan and Webb and ahead of all the others, citing his big 56 last lap as the reason, wondering how many of the others ran an impressive, as impressive closing lap. Let's not he- let the heat of the moment change history or change numbers. And so he points out a couple flaws he had here. We had here. First of all, 56, 56, not according to letsrun.com. And then he links to our article and says it was a 5681. I don't really know what point he's trying to make there because a 5681, that is a 56 last lap. It's like 56 high, but whatever. His second point, though, was fair. He said Reed Brown, who was the last high schooler to break four before Dashbach, when he ran 359.30, which was a faster time than Dashbach, he closed in 56 AD, which was also, that was one hundredth of a second faster than Dashbach for his last lap. So I did not realize Reed Brown closed that fast, but you could definitely argue that's that's a more impressive performance. Uh, and then he also said Drew Hunter, when he ran 358, 25 indoors, closed in 5708, which is a little slower, but it's a faster time overall. And you've got tighter turns. So he said, overall, Dashbach was impressive, but the logic you used to place the performance as number three all time doesn't hold up to numerical scrutiny. So we welcome the scrutiny, Jason. Thank you for your email. My take on that would be, I would say he clearly is not Webb or Ryan. I didn't really mean to imply that he was definitely ahead of, of Drew Hunter. I'd probably put him at fourth. I mean, sounds like there's another 56 in there, but remember this was a high school only race and also he's been training alone during COVID. So and also, I think he really didn't get moving until 2.50 to go. Like, not to sort of shift the goalposts on this argument, but I don't know, maybe Ree Brown kicked to the bell. Maybe Ree Brown only kicked with 200 to go. But Doshbach, like, his last 200, I'm sure, was, you know, is a pretty negative split uh, last 400 overall. So he, he his close, that last 200, impressed me. I'll just say that. But we appreciate the feedback, and we want to hear more. So shoot us an email. Let's run it. Let's run dot com or give us a call 844-538-7786 844-LET'S RUN you can actually reach us on the phone so John that was last week this week there was also another historic mile the professional ranks Johnny Gorgorak the runner that you used to beat in high school if I believe is correct 349 miler right John Correct. Anyways, 349. He run 406.25 to break the Blue Jeans world record and raised his raised well over 30,000. I don't know what it's up to now, maybe 40,000. National For the National Alliance on Mental Illness in honor of his brother, Patty, who tragically died last year. So pretty impressive, John. 406 in Blue Jeans? It was awesome. Uh, and Honestly, watching that, Johnny was saying, you know, he thinks now someone could break four minutes if you get an actual legit field. And I think he's right. But more than anything, this was just a great unifying event for the running community. Johnny was pu- pumping it up. A lot of, uh, you know, journalists on Twitter were sort of pumping it up leading up to the race. And he streamed it live on Instagram. Kyle Merber and Johnny's wife, Amy, were doing the commentary. And I watched it live and you had... Tons of famous runners are in there watching. I mean, Matthew Sensiewicz, Molly Huddle, uh, a bunch of them were just – Nick Willis. They were all in there getting excited about it. And it felt like 
it just felt like the running community again. It was like, oh yeah, these are all the people I like to talk to and see at meets and you know write about, and they're all excited about the same thing, seeing Johnny do this. And yeah, really great, great job by him. Four oh six, fast time. I think that's try to think. I, I think that's that's around what I would have expected because the previous record was four eleven by Dylan Maggard and. Dylan set that like the week after his cross country season when he wasn't in amazing mile shape. Johnny's a lot faster in the mile than Dylan. So I do think sub four is possible, but yeah, it's pretty, pretty crazy to see. And, uh, just a, a fun day, you know, it was, it was a fun day and a lot of money raised for a great cause. Yes. You know, really fantastic. Um, John, what sort of jeans do you wear? I mean, now they got the stretch material in the jeans. I think we're going to have to have, soon have rules and what qualifies as jeans. Was this just a time trial? It may have brought the running world together, but I got limited time with the little one at home, so I'm not watching a lot of running. Yeah, I think it was 100% cotton Levi's. I agree with Weldon because my some of my jeans are pretty flexible. They were they were legit jeans. I looked at them. He actually wore a belt to make sure they weren't slipping down. But these this wasn't one of these like you know tights that are painted to look like jeans. Like they were they were legit jeans. And also Levi's. I think they were Levi's and they made a $5,100 donation, I believe to the cause. So, you know, good job by them. Up to 36,000 now in, in the donations. But John, is this story was gaining prominence, I think over the weekend and I was putting it up on the, on the homepage. I did think, well, how fast is Johnny? I was like, is he 349 to three? Did he run 349, 349 high indoor mile? And I thought, you know what? This right here destroys Jonathan Galt's, praise of Alan Webb in a weird way. John is so into the tank for Alan's 346 American record, which we've said is basically a 335. I praised it when I was a po- on a podcast with Webb, and now you're getting mad that I'm giving him too much praise. I mean, it's not like a... Oh, my God. I'm just saying, like, do you really think of Johnny Gregoric? The fact that Alan Webb ran three seconds faster than Johnny Gregoric, do you think that's some monumental achievement? I know Johnny did make a world championship final, but... Come on, wouldn't you think that the greatest runner in American history would be at least three seconds faster than Johnny Gregoric? This is a guy that never won an Ivy League 1,500-meter title. I mean, Johnny Gregoric's mile PR is faster than Matthew Centrowitz. I don't really, like, Alan Webb ran a really fast mile. Do, do, are you saying, like, I guess, why aren't you mad at every other American runner in history for not running three, fast, three seconds faster than Johnny Gregoric, Robert? 349 is a really effing fast mile. I mean, what else do you want me to say? Do you want me to say 349 is just like not fast and it's a it's a joke of a performance? I mean, I guess you're right. How much faster can Webb go? I don't expect him to run three. I mean, he he beat Johnny smoked Craig Engels. Robert, you're getting into John's two sensitive subjects. Alan Webb's mile record being the best thing ever and Johnny Gregoric being like one of the best things ever. So it's very hard for John to square these. It's getting very tough. We need to talk about yeah. Bring Andy Powell into this conversation. That's uh. We're going to talk about this later with some more of John's biases when one of the when Joe Fast joins the program about you know John beat Johnny. He knows him. When John's friends with you or used to go to high school with you or something. You know, there's a little bias. John talks about being a pure journalist, but you know, friendships enter, enter the thing. How yeah. dare you? Anyway, no. Here's 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 the. Oh yeah, no. My my point I was going to make when I was before I was interrupted was. In that race, Johnny smoked Craig Engels, who ended up being the U.S. champ that year and the uh, world championship finalist. I mean, I just don't think, say, like, trying to use this evidence, this is evidence that, like, Johnny's not that good or 349 is not that fast, I think is just ridiculous. Is, is Alan Webb's 346, is that the new Alberto Salazar of the podcast? It's brought up every podcast, you know, like with the Vaporfly thing for a while, too. 
I feel like it's coming up so. every week. And speaking of Salazar, Alberto, you're always welcome on the podcast. We'd love you. I will give Alberto how many minutes every every segment would he get? I don't know. I mean, well, well then, there's Salazar news. Have you checked the homepage this morning? Oh, of course. First thing up, John. First thing in the morning. <laughs> I know, you have a young baby, so uh, well, actually, young baby is just redundant. All babies are young, but a date has been set. For Alberto Salazar's appeal at the Court of Arbitration for Sport, him and Dr. Jeffrey Brown, November 8th through 16th. We'll be covering this thing like the OJ trial at letsrun.com. Yeah, they should, I mean, with no, if there's no sporting events going on, they should let us live stream this thing. It'd be great. We'll be there with Court TV with a mask on, you know, and this will be inside. I, I love all the journalists outside, you know, they're not within anyone and then they have mask on or like, I saw something with some cameraman and like none of the... Ca- the reporter was like criticizing some person for not having a mask on and none of his cameraman had a mask on. I'm like, this is just so much of the news today's for show, but that would be great. But speaking of Alberto close related, do we have any comments on the Lance Armstrong documentary? The 30 for 30. I mean, I learned more about his early life. I didn't really realize he started out as a, as a triathlete and transitioned to biking. But to me, I don't know. I mean, Lance and I are from the same area. Like we go to high school meets. I'm pretty sure Lance was winning the cross country races. Robert and I are running the JV races. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, he's, he still seems like kind of an asshole. He hates Floyd Landis, which I wasn't, I didn't, I mean, I guess he hates him just because the whole Floyd Landis thing. I didn't really realize all that stuff. I mean, essentially what happened was Floyd Landis got caught doping, got stripped of his tour title in 2006 served his time, wanted to come back to the sport and wanted to join Lance's team because Lance was making a comeback. This is about 2010. And they're like, hey, sorry, you're radioactive. We can't have you. And so Floyd's like, screw these guys. Like, I was definitely not the only one doping. If I can't come back, I'm taking these guys down. And he was the whistleblower that was the key to bring down Lance Armstrong. And I, I didn't really realize all the details from that case. So it was interesting to hear that. Yeah, we got a plug. I'll put this in the show notes. We had Floyd Landis on the podcast, I guess a year ago this past December, so like 18 months ago. And that was a big talk we did, and it sort of prompted us to get back into doing the podcast regularly, I feel like. I had just moved to New York, and you could tell Floyd and Lance, or Floyd knows that Lance doesn't like him. So the standing offer stands. We're going to get Lance Armstrong on the podcast. Lance or Alberto is coming on this podcast, but... I think there's more hope for Lance making promises. He can't deliver here. Lance has got his own podcast. I'll plug that. It's pretty interesting. Well, I, I, again, I haven't had time to watch this Jordan documentary. I haven't had time to watch these Lance documentaries. I actually have to do the website where everybody else is sitting on paternity leave and stuff like that. But well, did send me a tweet saying that Lance talked about online message boards. So we know that he's pretty much read my cast or some mini article. He's read some articles and let's run. I wonder if he's reading the message boards about himself. But back to Alberto, guys, do you think he will be – his ban will be overturned? I was thinking yes, but my prediction now is no. His ban to me has been very unsatisfying. He was not a convicted of doping any real legitimate athletes except for his assistant coach, Steve Magnus. And I was thinking, you know what, this court's going to overturn that. But then I thought, no, courts all the time rule on like the minutia of the rules. So what he technically did was illegal. I think it will stand. I've changed my mind. Yeah. I read this whole Salazar. I mean, I read the whole USADA case against him and he broke the rules. He did what they said he did. And I don't understand like 
CAS is just going to come in and say, well, wasn't really in the spirit or like, well, Magnus wasn't an athlete and they're just going to overturn it. I don't think so. Like you sort of spelled out very clearly how he violated the rules that he did. And I think they're going to uphold it. Well, John, you identify as left of center. I mean, the left of center is always told, don't actually read the actual law. Don't actually read the actual constitution. You got to interpret what the intent of the rules are. So if you're sort of the living and uh, I forgot what that's termed constitutionality, then you could get off on that front. Like the living constitution. Speaking of Nike, the Lance thing, Nike was criticized a little bit because even after the first suspension came, Nike defended Lance for a day or two. And Nike is so good at like marketing. They can market, you know, Robert praised them for the tweet they sent out up this week on the George Floyd situation. There's just, they can market anything. Um, but they were backing Lance once the drug convention was done down until finally people like protesters, this shows protests can make a difference, went and like stood outside the entrance of the Nike campus. And they realized, okay, for once we have to back down. But it begs the question, what did people at Nike know? Remember they used to have the Lance ads and he'd be on there hooked up all to the scientific gear. And they made it sound like Nike was like testing his blood all the time and doing this stuff. And it's like, it's about, it's about the bike you know, essentially saying like, it's not the drugs. Like, but shouldn't they have known any smart person? I feel like three or four years out knew he was doping. Like just, there was so much circumstantial evidence. I would have like easily bet my life if I had to go one way or the other that Lance was doping. And it begs the question, I mean, just all along, what could Nike do for, for a clean sport? And there's never any, I don't know. I feel like I mean, everyone makes shoes in third world countries and that sort of stuff. You can criticize all these companies. It's sort of globalization's the way stuff's done. But like Nike sort of skates through everything, I feel like, amazingly well. Well, the, the thing that fascinated me was the uh, the reaction to Landis when he kind of got this whole thing rolling and sort of started speaking out. Like, what would happen if someone did that in track and field? If someone who was part of one of these notorious doping regimes or, you know, someone now, like... I'm sure there are tons of athletes. Obviously, there's a huge doping problem in Kenya. What if some doctor or someone comes forward and is like, hey, here's how it all happens. Here are all the other people who are doping. I, I feel like if I were them, I would. they would be viewed as a, they would be lauded and applauded. And this happened uh, with the Stepanovs in Russia. I think a lot of people view these, view them as heroes, uh, you know, for whistle blowing the whistle on this Russian doping scandal. Yeah, but a lot of Russians view them as traitors and traits and like, That's you know, rats, right. right? So- I think some of it comes down to like how prevalent was the doping in cycling. Uh, I think it's pretty easy to argue that maybe 80, 90% of the Peloton was doping. Maybe that's just not a fair vindication, but like, I feel like in track and field, more people might be clean. There's not the team aspect. So there's a lot more clean athletes, or at least I hope there are. So I think a whistleblower would be more warmly received. Cycling was just such part of the culture. For next week's podcast, we should find the emails just from people who were so tied into Lance because he represented so much more, like the cancer survivor thing. And it's just a it's a fascinating story of like, I don't know, like success, greed, determination. It's like everything wrapped up into one. And now what is it over 10 years later? Like everyone, it still hits all the buttons. I don't think they'd be praised, John, necessarily. Look at Kara Goucher. She spoke out. And people say she's better than Alberto Cutter. Same thing with Magnus, Steve Magnus. I mean, 
but they have a lot of defenders too. That their their opinion, the opinions about them are split. I would say Kara has a lot of fans, but she also has a lot of detractors. Betsy Andrew, who also helped read out uh, Lance, she appeared on the on the Clean Sport Collective podcast with. Well, you're using the term "read out." I mean, you're making it sound like it's a bad thing. Well, I'm just saying that's how people view it. She said that she was people went after her. She was very worried about it. She's on this Clean Sport Collective podcast with Kara Gouger. It's a very interesting interview. About, I mean, it was because Lance was bigger than sport. He represented, and, and the, Nike made those ads. What, what am I on? I'm on nothing but you know, hard work. And I would never just, he, he said, I would, I'm never, on my bike, busting my hours, ass six hours a day. So, yeah. But anyway, speaking of doping, the Dutch half marathon and marathon record holder, Abdi Naji, um, it was an interesting article on fastrunning.com. And he had a number of things. He talked about he trained the Ali Kipchoge. Best thing Ali Kipchoge ever told him was, why are you always looking at your watch? Just have your watch on and let it record stuff, but don't look at it and run by feel. So I think Walden would support that. But he was talking about doping, and he doesn't think it's going away anytime soon in Kenya. And it was interesting, his quote. In Holland, a person cut doping will feel ashamed. Your teammates, your colleagues, even your own family will really be disappointed in you. But here in Kenya, they don't think that much about it. Society is not aware of it. So when a Kenyan or Ethiopian is cut doping, they can disappear. They can peacefully have other jobs, keep their own money, and nobody will harass them. He says that that's the quote, and then the article adds on. He says that since the primary motive for most people running in Kenya is to lift themselves out of poverty, until they see banned athletes losing their farms, losing their cars, and having to pay back their winnings, some people will think it's worth the risk. And, John, I, I think that's the thing. I think sometimes in this podcast in the past, you've asked, when is this going away in Kenya? What can we do to educate them? It's a money thing. When you're dirt poor, I mean, I was looking back at some of the archives on Let's Run, and, and, and it came last week and just randomly came across my trip to Kenya. About You'd show up for a fartlek run, and there'd be like close to 1,000 people. I remember being at the track one time and this guy was training. He was like a 410 miler. He wanted to be a professional runner. I said, well, he explained to me, he's like, but I'm not really giving up that much because there's no job to go to. The jobs pay so little anyways. You have to have a connection. Like, so his dad's like, yeah, go live in El Duret and see if you can become a runner. Cause if you can win a few thousand dollars, that's life changing money. So, you, you know, you do that for two years, you're not making it. Somebody offers you a shot and you're going to make five grand. You might do it. I, I understand. Yeah. And that's one of the systemic problems is you say, okay, I took my shot at running. Okay. It wasn't good enough. I, I tried doping. And if you get caught doping, you just go back to what you would have done anyway, if you weren't making it as a pro runner. So it's a tough problem to solve. Yeah. When is doping going away? That's like asking when greed is going away. And Robert talked about systematic systems, you know, we can go back to what we started with George Floyd, racism, murder, like police brutality. I mean, when are those things going away? They'll always be here to some extent, but we can make institutional changes and change the culture of things. So the incentives aren't there to do it and other people speak out, you know? So it's like, but until that's why the testing system has to be better with back to doping, because until the risk of getting caught are much higher, there's going to be people going to do it. Man is, there is evil in the world. There is greed in the world. There is thievery, that sort of stuff. Right. And you think actually, honestly, in terms of the, of the police stuff, you'd think that the body cams, all the cell phone cameras, surveillance cameras would really drastically reduce those numbers. And I, mean, I think 
you have to be an idiot now to think you're going to be able to do something and not have someone film it. Obviously, this guy still did it with the film, but hopefully the numbers go down really quickly on that front because there can be a sort of a tech. You can't change someone's heart, but you can have a technological solution to at least the most egregious cases in that front. Speaking of Kenya guys, culture, right, Robert? This comes back to doping, like. The cops sort of used to be like, oh, yeah, sure, they're dirt, dirty cops, but I'm not one of them. And now they realize, like, wait, it makes me look bad. I got to stay, say something. So, like, clean athletes speak out. Clean cops are now, like, marching and that sort of stuff. So, hopefully, standing silent, if you're doing the right thing, doesn't always have the effect you think it does. So, more people do need to speak out on a lot of different issues. It's kind of interesting, actually, you're right about the if there's shame involved, you're less likely to do it. If the other cops start standing up, feel confident in standing up to another cop, you know, like why didn't the three other cops say something to this asshole when he's got his knee on this guy's back? Now they probably will be more willing to stand up. If you see something, you know, one thing we didn't talk about, John, the podcast, and I thought about doing this, when, 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 the Alan Webb podcast, to me, when you go back and listen to what he said, I was like, was he implying that there was doping with Salazar. He's like, you know, and they're doing all this stuff and they got the supplements and you feel like there's more going on. To me, that was sort of like, whoa, he's acting like something's behind the scenes here. And that's kind of what Kerry Goucher is implying. I didn't do. Some people did it clean, but we don't know what was going on. Behind I them. think it's because they don't know. Salazar had a very tight inner circle. When Webb was there, it was basically just Mo and Galen were the only people in that tight inner circle. And Webb and Goucher, none of them, none of them knew what they what Salazar was doing behind with Galen behind closed doors. And maybe it was all legal, maybe it was mostly legal, or maybe some of it wasn't legal. And that's the big question: is they don't know because they weren't privy to that. So they they all they know is what they see, and what they see, they're like, hmm, this is kind of sketchy. And if there's other stuff that I'm not privy to, maybe that's even sketchier. But that's just them sort of thinking based on their observations and time with the team. All right, before we get to our interviews. David Rodisha has broken his ankle. Is this the end for him? I mean, I wasn't too high on his comeback chances before that. I mean, he's he's going to miss, what, 12 to 16 weeks rehabbing? So, I don't know. I mean, the, the one positive is that the Olympics are next year, not this year. But I wasn't expecting much from a Rodisha comeback to begin with. And this obviously doesn't even doesn't help things. It's unfortunate, though. I hope he feels better soon because there's nothing more than I'd love to see. David Rudisha, a resurgent Rudisha against Donovan Brazier in the 2021 Olympic final. Well, guys, it's been a good week. We've got two exciting interviews coming up. John? Well, good podcast week. Not a great week for the country at large. Yeah, I meant, excuse me, I meant good weekly podcast. But it's far from over. Two big interviews coming up, John. Tell the listeners what we have coming back to back. Yeah, we've got Joe Fast. He is a rising freshman at Princeton University from Ridgemont High School in Ontario. And he comes on. He's a big fan of the show. He comes on, offers some hot takes. We had a good time with him. Obviously talked about his his name, which is uh, pretty amazing. And that's how he got his attention. Uh, and that's how he got our attention. And then we talked to Tyler Andrews as well, who is a professional ultra runner with Hoka One One. He's the U.S. 50-mile champion. And this weekend, as part of the Chosky Challenge, he'll be trying to break the treadmill world records for the marathon and the 50k distance he tells us all about that event sarah hall's participating they've got mike wardian as well should be quite an exciting way to spend your saturday night uh if you're at home so stay tuned those interviews coming right up yeah one more thing on tyler andrews full disclosure tyler does advertise his strive running trips on let's run.com 
But Tyler couldn't even break 18 minutes for 5K in high school. People love his story. When Hoka did the sponsored stories before the trials, like Tiger Tyler's, I think, was one of the most viewed because it took off on social media. People are like, you know, meet the guy who couldn't break 18 minutes for 5K in high school and now made the Olympic marathon trials. And now he's trying to break these 50K world records. So that's pretty cool. And speaking of high school, for our podcast listeners, summer training program, you get daily training, but also there's going to be a let's run community. You're going to get coaching advice, you know, like the purpose of every runs. Even if you already have a plan for the summer, you could sign up for this thing. Any podcast listener, I don't know if you can give a discount code. Code podcast. We'll try to figure out, put a discount code. If you use the code podcast, you'll save 25 bucks. If there is no discount code, email me at summer at let's run.com and we'll give you 25 bucks off the summer training program. And you also get exclusive discounts on running apparel and shoes. So it's going to be a great Let's Run summer training program and club. All right, we are happy to be joined by Joe Faust. He is a high school senior from Ottawa, Ontario. He has run a personal best of 352 and 1500 meters as a junior. He'll be attending Princeton in the fall. And he's got one of the best names I've ever heard, Joe Faust from Ridgemont High School. Joe, thank you for joining us on the podcast here. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's uh, I feel I feel quite lucky to be on right now. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's funny. This whole thing started because I saw that you were coming to Princeton in the fall. They sent out some release, and then I was like, "Oh my god, this guy's name! He has the perfect name for running. It's Joe Fast." And then someone pointed out, "Oh, he went to Ridgemont High School." So I was like, "That's also crazy." Turns out you're a big fan of the site. Seemed like a pretty cool guy as well. So thanks for joining us. The one thing I want to ask before we get to you, you emailed us and said, hey, I've got some hot takes to dispense. And you know how we love hot takes on this show. So we're going to hear them from them in a minute. The first thing I want to ask, though, what is the best and what is the worst puns that have been made about your name? Just all the time. There's jokes made. Uh, worst puns are kind of like uh, just, oh, I'm sure you're going to go fast today or something like that. Um, I haven't really had a great pun about my name, to be honest. But, you know, it's always fun. Like, it's something... Oh, we'll see what this person this person says, and I always have to laugh at the joke. And yeah, you know, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, really, to be honest. But, yeah. Are you sick of it at this point? Have you just accepted it? What's it like having a, being a runner and having Foss as your last name? No, well, it's it's it helps me out because I feel like the only reason I got to get on here was because of my last name. So you know, I'm happy about it. But uh, but yeah, that is true. I mean, we just not anyone with hot takes can get on the program. John, we're starting a new also revenue source. It's kind of going to be like varsity blues. If any high school parents with a lot of cash, you want to get your high school kid on here, just start wiring the money to, I guess, preferably me. John, I need to, I need to interrupt here, John. I am a little curious as to how he ended up on the podcast. I'm checking the corporate email here and it looks like Joe sent you an email said, Jonathan, I had a good laugh when you tweeted about it, about me. I think you're the best track and field journalist in North America. So, John, a few years, a few weeks ago, Des London sent you a tip. She ended up on the podcast. This guy gives you a compliment, and he's just immediately put on the show. Joe, first of all, do you when you said that though? I mean, obviously, Jonathan is very gullible or very easily swayed. Did you, <laughs> did you mean that as a compliment? Because you said the best journal track and field journalist in, in North America. A, I'm not sure how many track and field journalists there are in North America. Maybe like the best one of one. And two, you said North America, so you're not saying worldwide. Who was a better journalist than Jonathan? Uh, I just didn't want to speak. Uh, I didn't want to lie or anything. I mean, I only follow really North American things. Jonathan is the best uh, 
best journalist. Like his articles are way better than anything on FlowTrack or anything like that. So that's that's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay, before we get to the hot takes, though, as a Princeton alum, I want to know like how much of an influence was the fact that I went to Princeton and graduated there made was in, in you deciding to go to become a Princeton Tiger? Like was that number one, number two? How high up on the list? No, it's it's all you, Rojo. That's the the only reason. Very good, very good. Oh, man, I, I told Rojo, I thought that that might have been the only thing that was swaying you against it. It's like, well, Princeton's got a lot of good things. It's a great school. They have good running, but Robert Johnson went there. Maybe I have to reconsider. So uh, let's get to these hot takes. He's He sent us like seven that he wanted to do, and I picked four that are pretty amazing. Hey, hey, look, look, if if, if he's good with the couple that we gives us today, maybe he's a repeat guest. You know, you got to earn your way. So, uh, Robert, go ahead, see which ones you're going to get started with. Well, jo- jo- Jonathan introduced you as a 352, 1500-meter runner. You also run 153 for the 800. A couple of these are 800-related. Let's start with, with one of those. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll have to reveal my ignorance, I guess. Your first one is Abdali Hassan will actually win the next 10 NCAA titles. I've got to admit, I didn't even know who Abdali Hassan was. I've now Googled it. This guy's Canadian. Ran 147 last summer at age 16, one day before his 17th birthday, he's going to Wisconsin. But are you joking around about this, or do you really think he can be that good? No, I am I 100% serious. This is one I'm most excited about, like this dude. Uh, yeah, 147 in the Canadian National Championships, third place. He was like less than a second be- behind Mar- Marco Aroff in that race. Uh, he like passed, went right on Brendan McBride's shoulder, 200 to go. For a second there, I was like, oh, this guy's going to win the race. Didn't happen, but like you should see how this guy runs. I don't know if you've watched any of the races or anything. Probably not. But he's he's like a skinny guy. He's run forty six high in the four hundred. He just the way he runs, it's so bouncy, so talented runner. I don't even know how hard he trains, but like in Wisconsin, they're gonna make him like world class fifteen hundred meter runner or really really good in the eight. He's he's already so good. So I am like so certain about this. Like like hundred percent gonna happen. I'm excited now. A- I mean, Marco Arop was a world championship finalist last year. So if you're, if you're close to him in the national championship as a, as a high school, what, ju- he would have been a junior last year? That's pretty remarkable. Exactly. Arop was like, he was less than a second kind Arop in that race. And and man, like he was right in it. It wasn't like he came on late or anything. This guy was like just amazing. So excited to watch him. That'll be a great hot take if it's true. I mean, I did look at a picture of this guy. He looks super skinny. Um, but the 800... It's one of the hardest events, I think. There's a lot of 800 phenoms from high school. The U.S. record holder for the high school, Michael Granville, never really did anything. Even recently in Ivy League, there's Miles Marshall. He ran 148 as a 16-year-old and I think won the junior Olympic gold medal or something. And then never – I don't want to say he never did anything at Harvard. I mean, he did win a ton of, of Ivy League titles, but basically I was looking at his – Seasonal best time starting in 2014, 148, 148, 148, 147, 149, 148. So a lot of guys kind of develop in the 800 and have a hard time keeping going, but definitely good there. Let's move to the next 800 topic. This one to me seems indefensible. (laughs) Bryce Hopple will have a better career than Donovan Brazier. How is that? You're right. This is uh, probably uh, my least favorite to defend here, but I will. Bryce Hopple, just the season he had last year was like utterly amazing. Like, I don't know how you run that well from like February to October the entire year. 
He's running 140, like consistently running 144 in the 800 for that long. That just, it shows that he can go so much faster. Like if his peak is not 144, he, he can run and he ran 144 low. Like that's only not that far behind Brazier in the final. And we can't forget like Brazier had struggles right when he went pro. Uh, Bryce Hoffel hops right into it. He's, he's running so well. And that's, that's pretty much the take. (laughs) I'd like the reasoning a little bit, but my big issue is this. Donovan Braze is already the world champion and the American record holder. So, And he also just totally destroyed Bryce Hopple earlier this year indoors when they raced at Milrose. But the the thing to me is, like, if you're saying he's going to have a better career, you're saying he's going to be world champion and American record holder and then and then some, which I just think that's too high, high, high a bar to clear. Man, I like, I just, I was so, that, that last season there, he he ran so well. I there's just this feeling really deep down, like Bryce Hoffel watching him run. This guy's gonna do great things, but just me. I'm ex- I'm excited. I like to see Bryce race, but I think I think Brazier like Brazier has an outside shot to get the world record. Like I just think the ceiling of the two of those guys. I, I don't think that Bryce quite has the 400 speed that uh, that Donovan has. Question: Who's older, Hoffel or Brazier? Brazier is older by. Seven months. I'm impressed. I mean, I guess you're a mid D guy, but I'm also impressed that like a lot of your hot takes are sort of focused on American runners. But I guess in Canada, you probably get a lot of American media. Yeah, exactly. I've got a Canadian 800 meter trivia question. I guess I'll throw this out to everywhere. And we didn't tell you this when you came on. We can't actually edit stuff out on the podcast. You don't have to worry about being embarrassed. I will not embarrass an 18 year old kid on the podcast. Jonathan, I'm going to throw this out too for your general knowledge. Do you guys know who Gary Reed is? Yeah. Okay, good. John, do you? Of course. Silver Damn. medalist at the 2007 Worlds. Damn it. I think I've already told this story then. He, he missed out the gold by like 0.01 or something like that. Am, am I right? Is that my, am I getting my history right here, Joe? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I know the silver medal. He, I don't think it was 0.1. Um, but yeah, former Canadian record holder. He was, he was fast. <laughs> okay, John, as, as we tell that story, someone look up the results of the 2007 Worlds. Oh, I was right. Nailed it. 147.10, and the winning time was 147.09. Which gets me to ask, how the hell is the winning time of the World Championships 147.09? That's absurd. But yeah, he missed out on the gold by 0.01. I gotta see this. That would be a good throwback Thursday, John. The problem is it's only it's only it's, the race is less than two minutes long. There's not a lot to talk about, really. But uh, that's apparently they went out in 55, which is just glacial wow okay what's your gary reed story though well then so my gary reed story was that when i was training in flagstaff there was these canadians there and they came out and gary reed was one of them and at the time i don't think he was that accomplished and so they came by the apartment to like have a some barbecue chicken or something and so we're eating and I, i had one of those cheap uh lava lamps you know and we're sitting there and there's probably like 10 of us in this one little room and like this pretty small apartment. And I see the thing start to like fall and I'm like, Oh my gosh. And it falls. And it just like, Gary doesn't see it. It like misses the back of his head or maybe it hit him. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. You know, if I knocked out and then I think maybe look, no 2007, this was in like 2003 or something. But I'm like, if I had almost, who knows what would happen if I like severely damaged Gary Reed and he wouldn't have been gone on to, Canadian history. Wow. 
Joe, do they still have lava lamps? I feel like that thing, that's more of a my generation type thing. Yeah, not too many around anymore. Yeah, they dude, when I was like 12 years old, lava lamps, so cool. I mean, I, to- I totally wanted one. Any of my friends who had one, they were jealous. I don't really know why, but, well, I know why. They looked cool. I mean, they're, yeah, I'll, I'll defend that take. 12-year-old Jonathan, totally right to have that opinion. All right, Joe, so you said you're 18, so you're born 2001 or two. So after Alan Webb ran his 353 mile in high school, um, so this is interesting. Your hot take is of the big three, Ryan Hall, Dathan Richardson, and Alan Webb, Alan Webb had the best career of the big three, no question. And this is great because we're hearing from someone who was not even really, you weren't alive when he was running some of his times and you didn't really follow his career. So this is an unbiased opinion from someone who studied the stats after the fact. Yeah, so from my like from the outside perspective, Alan Webb had the most competitive career of the three by far. Like, I th- I mean the arguments been made. Alan Webb was the closest to the top guys in the fifteen hundred or the mile throughout his career, uh, compared to like Dathan in the in the half marathon or the five k, and then Ryan Hall in the in the half marathon. Like Ryan Hall ran fifty nine forty three or whatever, and that I mean there are so many Kenyans that can do that. Uh, Alan Webb, he won a Diamond League, like everyone likes to point out in the in Paris, and he and he never had the World Championship success. But the way he was actually able to compete with the top guys in the world, I just think so much better than um, Dathan and Ryan Hall were able to. So, yeah. But Ryan, I mean, Dathan did get third of the World Half Marathon. Well, yes, sure, but he, yes, the very impressive race. Uh, there's Kenyans, like the amount of Kenyans that can, or East Africans, I should say, that can run 60 minutes, like that have ran 60 minutes since uh, that Dathan's performance. Uh, I just think uh, it's just not quite as impressive as, as Alan Webb running 330 in the 15. Webb was the only one who was ever ranked in the top 10 in the world by Track and Field News. He did that twice. Neither Ryan Hall, it was kind of surprising. I thought Ryan Hall, you know, he ran 206. I thought he might be up there once, but... Neither him nor Ritzenhain ever cracked the top 10 in any event. All right, we've had too many mid-D questions. You're a little bit biased because that's, that's what you run. Mo Farah could have taken down Kenanese Bikili's records if he really went for them. Now, this is going to be amazing because w- if you could get the world records, why wouldn't you want to get them to add to your legacy and go down as the GOAT? Okay, um, well, Mo Farah – he like his career. We know double Olympic double Olympic gold twice. Um, this guy was unbeatable over eight years, and just the way he was able to dominate everyone else I, in the races. Uh, I don't know how many times I heard like the British commentator say, "Oh, there's nothing the East Africans can do to beat Mo Farah." And you know, at a certain point, I think you have to recognize that if there's this guy's winning over and over again, this guy is so fit. This guy is way fitter than uh, guys in those races that have ran twelve fifty. He, if he really went for the records, I just believe that he could have ran this. Like a lot of the time people complain that today the races are way too tactical, way too, way too slow all the time. I mean, I like to look back at some of the old Olympics, some of the world championships. Mo Farah is running close to 13 minutes, sometimes sub sub 13 in world championships. He's running sub 27. And these are like the times that Bikaley was running. I mean, in, in championship races, I just, Mo Farah, he never went for them because we know medals matter uh times they're a lot harder they're a lot harder to get you need to get pacemakers that are willing to do it it's just 
I just really believe Mo Farah could have ran close to those times, or and he could have beaten them. Yeah, medals matter, but sort of world records, right? Yeah, but if you're peaking for one point in the season, you're going to peak for the championship race. And if that championship race isn't fast, you might not not have another chance to set up for a really fast world record. I mean, they're, it's so hard to get pacemaking for something as long as 10K or 5K to run that fast. And it's just, just Mofar never really got the chance to go for it. Well, my, my response to that would be, so, okay, first of all, Ferris PR is a 1253 and 2646 compared to Bekele, which is 1237 and 2617. So obviously there's some work to do there, but I, I get that. Like 5K, certainly when Bekele was running, the Diamond Leagues and Golden League 5Ks were just faster than what they were during Farah's era. And the fastest one that Farah had, he didn't even run. That was 2012 Paris when the winning was time was like 1246. He wasn't in that race. But but he did smoke all those guys in the Olympics that year. Exactly. So I think there's certainly a case to say he could have run low 1240s or something like that. But the issue to me is the 10K, there was a few years there in the mid-2010s where he would show up to pre the pre-classic and run the 10K you know, three or four times. And he would admit, like, hey, I'm trying to run as fast as I can. And he never ran faster than 26.46. Bekele, one year, showed up to the pre-classic, went out there in the morning, just basically solo, and clocked a 26.25. And that, to me, just says, like, he was on a totally different level of 10K fitness than Farah, because Farah's got pacemakers, he's trying as hard as he can, and he can't get in within 20 seconds of what Bekele did when he showed up one year and ran it in the middle of the day. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think other people would say, like, look to the marathon. Like, Bekele's ran 201.41. Mofari hasn't even been able to get close to that. But, okay, the like, Mofari has ran 328 twice. Uh, Bekele's 1500-meter fee, I don't actually know what it is. But Mofari, the way he was able to dominate the, the track races, and especially the 5K, I just, I think, I mean, it was really attainable for him. He just, you know, it wasn't, he never made it a primary focus. He was focused on winning, winning the big races. Totally. I mean, I always wanted to see a race between the two guys in their prime because Farah essentially took over right after Bekele kind of got hurt and he never got back to that same level. And I was always of the opinion a prime Bekele beats a prime Farah because you look at like the 2008 Olympics where Bekele just destroys everyone over the final 2K, runs the Olympic record. I, I just think like, oh, no one's going to beat that. But that's always the thing. Like everyone's like, oh, the strategy to beat Farah is to, you know, have someone who's strong enough to break him. And I don't think anyone existed among his peers, but I think Bekele probably was strong enough. So I think that matchup would have been really interesting. Yeah. All right, Joe, we're going to get you out of here. But I'm curious, freshmen, well, assuming we have college in the fall, what are you most looking forward to? I'm really thinking, oh, I'm going to college. I'm going to Princeton. It's this amazing place. I thought I'd be sitting around in a circle and like, philosophizing and solving the world's problems and then sorry i'm just laughing at that picture of robert (laughs) doing something like that i really did i had this grand idealistic vision of what college would be like and then i mean four years later i graduated and most of my time was doing hijinks with running with the buffaloes author chris lear shooting fireworks out of the dorm and going to parties we probably shouldn't have gone to so what are you most looking forward to? Running fast, school, social life, being away from your parents? A hundred percent running on the team. That's number one. But I am also super excited to get out of that, get out of my house and live on my own, start my own life. That's uh that's that's definitely number two there. And so yeah, what is what have you heard from Princeton about school? Yeah. Is there 
I mean, have they already taken your money? If you have to do the virtual classes, no way would I pay what they're charging for virtual classes. Uh, yeah, I know. So can, can are you still allowed to like defer the semester? I heard it's harder for freshmen, but like, I'm just kind of curious in general, like can a junior defer, but you can't, I'm just kind of curious like what you've heard. I think there's a lot of financial pressure to have camp, school on campus this fall, but we'll see what happens. And are you nervous about going because of COVID, like getting in a small dorm room with everybody? Not at all nervous. Like I'm working right now. It's I, like, I'm not nervous about COVID at all. Um, but about the deferral, I know like they extended a little bit, uh, the deadline. And I was told, yes, I can do it, but I shouldn't expect to uh, be able to go to school the, the following year. Like it might be even longer than that. So I'm not too sure what the situation is. I don't want to do that at all. I just hope they, they have school in the fall. Wait, if you defer, they said they may not guarantee, they'll guarantee you a spot at some point, but maybe not next year. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I heard. Yeah. It, they only have so many dorms, Weldon. So they would have a whole nother class the next year. They would run out of space. So let's hope they have it. All right, Joe, we have our new favorite NCAA runner to root for for next four years. All right. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, it's that it's been so awesome. <laughs> Spread the word on the Princeton team. Tell them to uh, start downloading the podcast. Oh, I'm spreading the word. Uh, yeah. All around. It's, it, it was depressing to me when I was coaching at Cornell one year, I walked into the thing and, into a practice and I just said, it hit me. I'm like, these guys, a lot of them don't even follow the sport at all. I said, how many of you know, it was a group of freshmen. I said, how many of you know who Howie Gepperselesi is? I would say it was roughly 50%, slightly less. It ever heard of him. So I don't know how you can be that good of a runner and get to college without being a student in the sport, but I guess talent goes a long way. Yeah, we need to grow the sport. That is for sure. All right. Thanks a lot, Joe. Okay, we are now joined by Tyler Andrews. He is a professional ultra marathoner for Hoka One One. He is the reigning US 50 mile champion, the silver medalist at the 2016 World 50K Champs, a two-time Olympic marathon trials qualifier. And most recently, he's the race director for the Chosky Challenge, which is coming up this weekend. So Tyler, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us on the podcast. Thank you for having me here. It's uh, super exciting. I'm a big, big fan, big listener. So this is definitely one of my dreams becoming reality. Oh, wow. Wow. Play right, playing right to the fields here. Well, you're in good company. I mean, Des Linden's also a fan. We've, we've had a lot of good guests this year. So, uh, yeah, I'm in know. a themed company. <laughs> uh, so you've been busy this year because you have run in February, you ran the Olympic marathon trials in Atlanta. Then in March, you went to Nepal. And you set the fastest known time for the route to Everest Base Camp. And now this weekend, you're going after the world records for the treadmill marathon and treadmill 50K. So I'm going to rewind back just quickly to Atlanta. You finished 82nd there, 222 51. How do you feel about that performance? Yeah, that's a, a pretty loaded question. Kind of like we, we were chatting a little bit before we started recording here. Um, so I had, I had a pretty rough start to the year, actually. Um, was dealing with some some pretty serious depression um, and just really really having some some pretty dark times in my life and for me the trials was something that I'd been thinking about since Los Angeles in 2016 and I had a pretty disappointing race there and um, really wanted to kind of redeem myself in 2020 and um, everything was pointing towards that going great uh, through 2019 um, you know I'd, I'd kind of come at it from a very different perspective because I'd moved a lot towards the ultra world but I was super psyched. I was having really solid workouts. And then um, long story short, had a pretty traumatic event in my life that kind of pulled the rug out from under me a little bit and 
just fell into some a really dark place uh, personally. And you know, I, I remember listening to Nick Simmons talk on on your podcast a few few weeks ago, and he talked about you know how he was he had st- suffered from clinical depression and how he thought a lot of athletes probably struggle with that. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that. I think that when you compete at a really high level, you have to put a ton of your own self-worth into your running. And that can obviously be super powerful. It can be a huge motivator, but it's, it also sets you up for um, for some pretty challenging times as well. Um, but anyway, so for the for me, the trials kind of changed from being like, okay, I'm going to go there and, and, you know, compete as hard as as I can in PR or, you know, be competing for a a top spot to, to really like, I just wanted to kind of get to the starting line. Honestly, it was like that. I was at that level where it was just like, if I can get, get to the starting line in Atlanta, that's going to be a victory for me. And I did. And I ran honestly a, a pretty, pretty good race for me at the time. I think I was in like 10th to last at 5k and then passed like I don't know, a hundred people or something during the race, which is a very fun way to run a marathon going out a little bit more conservative. Um, you know, obviously it wasn't what I was hoping for in terms of the time. If you'd asked me six months ago or, or six months before, or even a year ago, but, um, as a race, it was, it was an, I mean, it's always an amazing experience to go to a huge race like that on such a big stage. And again, kind of where I was at the time in my life, it, it was a really positive experience and a big step forward for me. Mentally, with your health, do you do you think things have improved since the trials? Did the trials help in as- any aspect of that? Yeah, for sure. They um, it, it was definitely a big landmark, a big milestone. And you know, w- with all these things, it's always you know you're taking baby steps, you're taking a few steps forward, maybe you slip back a little bit. Um, and and you have your support networks, you have you know mental health professionals and stuff that are that are helping you along the way. Um, and, and I've relied a lot on that, on, on my community and, um, my loved ones, my family and friends and stuff. And I think that also just the running world, like that was a a really amazing weekend to just be there. I had a whole lot of friends there. Um, and my family was there, my parents were there and just, it's such a positive event. You know, even people who have bad races at the trials, like they'll tell you how amazing it is to just be there and be a part of it. And, I think for me, that was a, a pretty big turning point. And then, you know, like you mentioned, going going to Nepal afterwards was was a very different kind of, of really positive experience, one that was really like introverted and solo for me um, versus the trials, which was so packed with, with different people and community. Um, and, and now the last really like two months, I suppose, since getting back from Nepal and kind of building Chosky from the ground up and putting this event on, it's just like I've been super, super busy, which for me has been really positive because a lot of that busyness has been developing community and interacting with other people, which has been really positive, uh, for me as, as a person. And, and I hope that we've, we've built something really cool, which, you know, we'll we'll get to in a little bit. Yeah. I want to go next to Nepal. So a lot of people after the Olympic marathon trials, they'll take some time off, they'll take a break, but you didn't really do that about two, basically two weeks after the trials, you hop on a flight to Nepal. You said you only confirmed it 48 hours before you got on the plane. And then you show up and you run the fastest known time on the Everest Base Camp Trail, which is 23 hours, 42 minutes, 13 seconds. It's a 65-mile route. The high, It climbs to 17,650 feet at its highest point. Its lowest point in the whole thing is 8,700 feet. Tons of climbing. What was that experience like? 
Yeah, so I, I actually flew to Nepal like two days after the trials, and I I think I bought the ticket like the afternoon after the race. Um, and the re the reason, like, I actually had planned to kind of take some downtime, and this is like for what it's worth, this is like my normal downtime. It's like I like to be stay active, and I'll like go do a bunch of hiking in the mountains. Like I love being in the mountains and pushing my body and stuff, and but in a different way than 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 running training. And that was really my plan was, hey, I'm going to go go over there and and I was actually planning to spend all of March in Asia. I was going to going to be hiking by myself for a couple of weeks and I was going to meet up with some friends in Thailand and this was if we can remember a life before covid this was like uh you know at the trials you know the trials still happened obviously and it, covid wasn't really being talked about a huge amount in the US and and even in Asia it was very consolidated to to China, Japan and South Korea so some people were like, "Hey, isn't there that virus? Like, are you worried about that?" And I was like, "No, there's no cases in Nepal. I'm not worried about it. I'm going to be out in the mountains." And anyway, so I I go to Nepal, and I again I had planned just to start hiking, and I think it was literally the first week I was there. I was just hiking around by myself, and I was basically out of cell phone communication for like a week or so. And I came back from that first hike, and it was like there was a whole new world all of a sudden. It was like I came back, and it was the day that. You know the the NBA had been canceled. March Madness was called off. It was like everything that happened had happened in that week when I was gone. So was, all of a sudden, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And I started calling my family and and people, and like, "What's going on?" And and that was, I think, it was right then or, or in the next couple of days where I was, I realized that like all the races I had lined up for the spring were not going to happen. And so it was, it was a very again a very impulsive decision where I was like, "Well, here I am." I knew that this FKT, the fastest known time, was a thing um for the Everest Base Camp Trail and I had just hiked it. So I, I knew it really well. Um and I was like, well I could do I could try and do a, a super hard, you know, one day push because no one had ever done it in under 24 hours before. And, you know, I was like, I, I I'm not gonna have to race for a while and I might as well just do this, do something really cool. I had like a little GoPro so I could make a nice piece of content with this and um you know tell tell a cool story. And that's really what for me my running journey has always been about is is just trying to to have great stories that I can you know share with myself or other people and so that was it I just um waited for a really good weather day I think I had a couple of days of rest and then just went for it we I left at like right after midnight like 12:05 a.m. and it was just all day all day movement I I never done anything like that my longest race was was 50 miles at that point but it was 50 miles of quick running so you know it took five hours or something um this was 105 kilometers which sounds really slow and it is but i was also probably wearing 20 pound backpack with because i had like you know really really cold weather stuff because the weather would change a lot a lot of it was super steep and rugged so it was really a combination of speed walking hiking scrambling some running on the flatter pieces and then you know once you get up super high above like 4,500 meters. It's just the running up there is so, so hard. And so it was honestly, it was a totally different kind of experience. So, but, but it was, it was a day that I'll never forget. That's for sure. Yeah. Now I've read some of the challenges with this route is potential traffic from yaks and donkeys, snow, yeah. mud, rocks. What was the biggest challenge for you? And did you run into any yaks? Yes, I definitely ran into yaks and donkeys. Um, part of the reason that I left at midnight is because when I had done this route by myself, it uh, there actually is a huge bottleneck of 
of donkey train traffic that you run into because yeah runner problems right all those i know right when you're in nepal that's what happens no but seriously it's like the first stretch um is basically from there's actually a tiny airport it's like the craziest airport in the world it's called lukla airport you you guys should look up like youtube videos of planes landing in lukla airport l-u-k-l-a it's insane the runway is like 400 meters long and it's like on the side of a cliff it's like the most terrifying thing ever but it the the first part of the route runs from there um, to this town called Namche, and it's about 20 kilometers. And if you go during the day, the problem is there's all these donkey trains that go back and forth because Namche, Namche is kind of like the the central hub for when people are going off in, in, into all these other trails around Everest and stuff. So there's all these supplies that need to get in there, and there's no roads. So there, there's just constant streams of donkeys going back and forth during the day. And there are places where there are these super narrow suspension bridges and really narrow cliffside trails, and you just get stuck behind these donkey trains, and they don't go that fast. And so you, you just can't get around them. And it's so like the first time I hiked it, it took me like five hours to go 20 kilometers, which is pretty runnable and pretty low, relatively speaking. So it was like really, really slow. And I knew that I just had to get past that while it was still dark. So I did that whole section, I think like under three hours on the actual attempt day because I did it in the middle of the night and there was no one there. Um, and then once I was out on the on the actual trail, like kind of into the more mountainous part, it was like the trail's a little bit more wider. So really it was it was pretty good but honestly it was it was really snowy um it was i mean it was crazy it's like you go from again eight thousand feet to 17 8 or something whatever it is and you just encounter everything you get super super cold temperatures snow ice mud um tons of mud on the way back because like we'd had snow the day before that melted so it's just you know i come from a track and field and cross country background like a lot of people and it's like this is as far away from that as you could possibly get as a runner um, and still kind of consider it a a running thing. Um, But yeah, it was wild. It was awesome. Yeah, I know. When I think of it, it just sounds like, yeah, it just sounds like a really fast hike because uh, the running it, and I mean, starting the race at, or race at 8,700 feet, you know, that's like pretty much the limit for a lot of people for how far (laughs) runners will actually go. And then you just got to climb from there. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've I've always done well with altitude. Um, I've done a lot of high altitude mountaineering, and I've I've I had actually been training for the trials down in Quito, Ecuador, which is at ninety three hundred feet, and so like that's where we were living. Like you know, we do like super hard track workouts and stuff down there. So that that level of altitude wasn't intimidating to me, but definitely like over over five thousand meters, like uh, about fifteen thousand, sixteen thousand feet, is when it, you really really start to feel it, unless you've had a lot of experience up there. Um, so that, that part was super tough, which is, you know, the last kind of, uh, probably two hours of, of the route to get to Everest base camp. And then, you know, when you turn around and come back down. So I remember feeling pretty, pretty smacked at that point and being like, oh man, I still have to like do half of this. Cause it's a loop. You go there and then you come back, um, back down and yeah, that altitude is no joke. <laughs> Any other recommendations for anyone who visits Nepal, like food or things to do? Oh yeah. So the one, um, the one thing I learned very quickly is that, so there's this dish called dalbat, which is the only thing that if you order it, it's like the local, uh, kind of Sherpa dish of choice. And it's basically just like lentils, rice, veggies, and some, um, uh, chapati bread. But it's the only thing that when you order it, they, they give you free refills on your rice and lentils and veggies. So it's like, if, if you're out there and like you're hiking a lot or trekking a lot or running or whatever, and you're, burning a ton of calories it's like that's the that's the only thing you get where you, they could just keep piling it on like as much as you want to eat and it's awesome so i i got i seriously ate dalbot every night for like 10 nights in a row or something all right next time i'm in nepal i'll keep that in mind yeah uh, 
Okay, so let's move on to this weekend. It's Saturday night. It's the Chosky Challenge. You're going for the records, for the treadmill records at 50K and the marathon distance. We've got a bunch of other runners competing. Sarah Hall. Has Sarah Hall done hers yet, or is she going she's to do doing it, this it She's doing it this week, yeah. So she has, she has not done it yet, but she's going to do it this week. Yeah, she's doing hers. So that one's going to be viewed, streamed, uh, tape delayed, but everything else will be streamed live. Uh, John Ranieri, Mario Mendoza, Mike Wardian, Marielle Hall and ultra runner Chris Brown is going to be doing the commentary. So it's going to be pretty exciting. Um, and it's, yeah, there's going to be this live broadcast of all the races, uh, the elite races starting at 6 PM Eastern time on Saturday. So Tyler, tell me, how did you come up with the idea for this thing? Um, well, first of all, it definitely wasn't just me. Um, so one of the things that we've been trying to really focus on at Chosky, which full disclosure, that's a, small coaching business that we've started with with some other people and that's what's behind this whole event um but it's the idea that many minds will always be better than one mind um so it's it you know we have collective chasky endurance collective in our name and that's the collective part is we have you know an amazing team of people super diverse team we have um you know track stars and ultra stars and road stars all together and the same same goes for this so i've kind of been you know the impetus of, of getting this off the ground and handling a lot of the logistics handling a lot of the the front-facing media stuff but it's definitely something that i've had lots of input and ideas from other people on my team and so it's it's definitely not i don't want it to come off as just my idea it's very much our thing it's it's grown way bigger than than just me um but one of the one of the reasons that this started was because um I had I had actually had an idea kind of like this back. So I did a, a fundraiser in 2015 where I did I set the half marathon treadmill record on uh, at the Boston Marathon Expo and um, super fun event, really cool. We raised a bunch of money um, for a program in Peru that we were working with um, and had a bunch of people there. You know, it's the Boston Marathon Expo, so gathered a big crowd. And then afterwards, I remember talking to my coach and I was like, this would be a lot more exciting if it weren't just one person, if we actually had a race with, you know, a bunch of people and you could have a cool race tracking screen where you could see, you know, where the people are relative to each other, you know, maybe up on a big TV in front of them. And so you're watching the athletes and you're able to see where they're, where, how their, how their race is developing. Um, and that idea, it, it just never really took off. We never were able to get people who were interested in it because, you know, we couldn't get funding for it. We couldn't pitch it to a sponsor because, you know, there's always just other stuff going on. Everybody always has other things going on. And then this spring, uh, I think it, it I, someone just like bumped a post from like five years ago about this event. And I was like, oh yeah, that was cool. That was a cool idea. Maybe like now is the time to do that. And so the the really cool thing to me about this event is that this is this is similar to quarantine backyard this this event is built 100% just by athletes like we did not have a single brand on board when we started we were just like we have this cool idea we all know a lot of other pro athletes and some of these people are super fit and they have no races to do so let's just get them on board we're going to we're going to uh harness the fact that if we get enough of us on and excited about this thing 
then somebody is going to pick it up and the and the hype will start to grow um and then we'll start to get other brands on board and and that's exactly what's happened um you know like i i gave you a call and was like hey we have all these people on board and you guys broke the story and then other media requests started coming in and the same thing with sponsors we got a couple of small brands early like squirrels nut butter and and noon um were, were some of our first that you know again we had very personal close personal connections to them and they believed in us and this idea. Um, and then it just grew very organically from that. And now it's like, you know, we're getting calls from sponsors that want to be a part of this event, um, which is super, super cool for us to see, um, especially because like we also have an open free race that anyone can do. And we actually have tons of prizes for that now because all these brands are like, yeah, we want to sponsor like first place for the open 5k. And, and so it's like, they're actually super loaded prizes in terms of like, it's probably like hundreds of dollars worth of stuff. I hadn't, haven't added it up, but it's like, it's probably like the biggest prize, like whatever valued prize purse for a, a free entry race ever. I would guess it's because like, again, we have like probably a dozen sponsors at this point and they all want to 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 support those those first three spots so um so it's been super cool from from that perspective to just see and and see how quickly it's grown especially over, over the last week or so and and how really how well people have responded to it um both you know the athletes that we have on board who are going to be racing on the elite side and then also just talking to other people in the media or, or brands who, who are all like yeah this is so cool it's so cool what you guys have, have built and are doing and um yeah, honestly, it started out as just a bunch of friends who wanted a cool project to work on to do for ourselves and also for our fans. And now I think it's something that we hope will be exciting for the whole running world. Yeah, for sure. I think the Quarantine Backcode Ultra, you mentioned that event was really popular, even among people. You know, I was watching a few hours of that. I don't usually ever watch ultra marathons, but I was intrigued by how that was going on. And I think it's because it had that head to head competition aspect. You know, people can say we have a virtual race and you can put your times up, but it's something like this. You can actually see people going for things head to head in real time, which I think is really appealing. And, uh, looking at some of these times, I mean, some of these world records, the one you actually set in the half marathon, I would say might be the strongest of all the ones you guys are going for. That's sixty three thirty seven, which mm -hmm. is faster than I thought it would be. So congrats on that. But now John Ranieri is targeting that. And then yeah. you're going after the, the marathon world record on the treadmill is two twenty forty five, and you seem to think you have a pretty good chance of taking that down. Yeah, I think that um, the tread, yeah, the the, ha the marathon and the ha and the, excuse me, the fifty k mark. Um, you know, one of us is is almost certainly going to get one or both of those. Um, you know, I think that's that's one of the cool things about this event is like we are able to say you know, with certainty that we are going to get some of these marks. You know, and that's kind of the idea is a lot of the time in the past these have been you know, there've been fundraisers, they've been things that people just kind of randomly do. And we, we don't want to just like, oh, we broke it by 30 seconds. And it's like a hard tempo effort or something, you know, it's like, I want to, like, I think I can run on a treadmill under the overall 50k record, the 243 mark. Um, you know, and I, I took a shot at that a few years ago on the track and missed it. But I mean, again, full disclosure, the treadmill is easier than running outside like i will say that 100 percent up front and i'm not going to claim like oh man i'm in 241 outdoor shape or something for 50k like i don't want to get torn apart on the on the boards by the let's run sleuths here but, i'm sure like, they'll find out a way to turn your apart. i'm anyway. sure they will too yeah i know right <laughs> but 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 um but i because i've done a few long runs on the treadmill at this point and i know kind of like what those workouts should feel like based on what i can run outside and and 
in terms of of the treadmill yeah like i'm I'm, i think i can break the the treadmill 50k record which is 256 i think i could break it by like at least 10 minutes uh again if not trying to break that that 243 mark as well um and and then yeah the marathon definitely bringing it under 220 i mean these are things that i'm i'm very confident in um you know the 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 marathon mark i guess is 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 definitely harder than the 50k mark but still like it's it's within the wheelhouse certainly for for me and max and then you know wardian Max you never King, know. We should say, yeah, sorry, Max yeah. King, yeah, um, who's you know former two fourteen guy um, and has is actually super super fit right now. Um, but again, is someone who like doesn't have a race to run. Um, so it'll be it's going to be really exciting. I'm I'm excited to to have especially to have Max in the race because um, I think he'll he'll make it interesting um, with the two of us going out pretty hard and and you know Wardian doing what he always does, which is probably going out hard and hanging on because he's a, a tough dude you know well, you gotta have wardian in there uh, you know he's the king of the backyard ultra so now that you've got him in this i think that's a that's a drawing drawing card as well yeah exactly and i, I think one of the one of the important things that you kind of touched upon with backyard is like this idea that any fan can kind of interact with this and have it be exciting and i think that we definitely are trying to build off of what backyard did and one of the things that they did super well was just the the way that like you said it kind of came down to this like mano a mano thing at the end um but i think that one of the things that we're trying to do even better is how we actually present that in the live stream so we have this super awesome tracker and interactive visualization app that we've built that's going to be on the website that people will be able to play around with it and then you know like you said we'll also have continuous live commentary from people who are super knowledgeable in the sport maria hall and chris brown um and that's gonna i think make it make it really exciting and, and i was like I, I said to you before we started recording i was actually just listening to your podcast from i'm not sure if it was last week or the week before but you're talking about the high school girl who did the time trial and how it's like well if you don't have the context to understand what's happening it doesn't really matter if she's running you know 9 30 or 11 30 in the two mile that the thing that makes racing exciting is you have to be able to understand what you're seeing. And if you just watch people run on treadmills, it's super boring. Like there's, I can barely think of anything more boring than watching someone run on a treadmill with no context. So we're going to have that. We're going to have those live windows so we can, you can see the athletes, but at the same time, like that's not that exciting. You need to have people talking about what's happening. You need to have a way to actually see how the race is developing in real time. You need to be able to see the splits to be like, Oh my God, look at how fast they're running. Um, so we, that's the thing that we've really tried to focus on from uh, a, a kind of delivery to the fan um, aspect in terms of how, how do we make it so that someone turns this on because, you know, they see it pop up on the Let's Run Twitter feed and they're like, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll check it out. And then they're like, whoa, this is really exciting. And I'm going to stick around for a couple hours and really watch this. That's, that's really what we want to do. Well, it sounds exciting. I think it's uh, something that the running community can get behind. And this is going to happen Saturday, 6 p.m. Eastern, Saturday, June 6th. Tyler, tell people how can they watch this? Yeah, so everything is at uh, chasky.run slash challenge. Um, that's the race homepage. So you can register for the open race there. Um, and either all the info on the elite race is there as well. And then on uh, probably on Friday, we'll post right at the top where exactly 
the uh, the live interactive page will be, but it'll it'll probably do, be just right off of that page, um, embedded right at the top. So chowski.run slash challenge, um, and you know that'll be all over our social media, and you know hopefully on on Let's Run as well too, so you guys can get to it right from there. Awesome. Well, I uh, appreciate you coming on, Tyler, and best of luck this weekend with the uh, record chasing. Thanks, Jonathan.